this morning as we uh, begin our time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I do want us to reflect for a moment on what Palm Sunday is all about. Uh, most of you know I have the privilege on Monday and Thursday mornings of teaching children at a, a neighboring elementary school uh, during their chapel services. And this week we're zeroing in, preparing for Holy Week, and I had the opportunity to teach first through fifth graders on Monday morning, and then three-year-olds through kindergarten students on Thursday morning, the story of Palm Sunday and Jesus riding in. I asked the kids a great question, right? If you were Jesus, how would you ride into the city of Jerusalem if you were the coming king that was ready to save his people? And, of course, you know what I got. I got all kinds of, I would ride in on a majestic horse. I would ride in on a chariot of gold. I would ride in, these are my favorite, on a tiger. I mean, can you? I mean, that's just like, that's kingly stuff right there, riding in on a tiger or a lion, right? But, but our king, Jesus, the humble king, rides in on the back of a donkey. With shouts of Hosanna, save us, save us. They spread cloaks out, their, their coats out into the road, their outer garments into the road as well as palm branches. And they wave these palm branches, a symbol of, of, of you know, the, the Jewish people to say, we need you to save us. And then as Jesus rides in, he comes into the temple and he corrects their, their practices and their thinking. They had turned God's place of worship into a place of business. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And as I share with the kids, that's who, that's who we want to be, by the way, Redemption Hill. I can't just miss that and say it one more time. God, make us a house of prayer. But then as I taught the kids on Thursday morning, as, as he taught in the temple and as he healed the blind and the lame, it wasn't just the adults on the side of the road that were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. But then it was the children who shouted out Hosanna to the son of David. Nothing was stopping their praise. And this is what we remember this morning is that God gives us the opportunity, the invitation to see who he is, to shout out Hosanna, save us. Jesus, you alone can save us. Deliver us from everything that assails us, everything that pains us, the suffering that we've seen on the week, even in Nashville this week. God, save us from all of this mess. And Jesus would save us. But he would save us in a way that we would least expect. And this is what we remember on Good Friday coming up. Jesus' method of salvation was not military rule or force but it was self-sacrifice, death on a cross, so that all who look to him and believe in his sacrifice can experience eternal life. Our salvation cost Jesus everything. And it's in light of his sacrifice that we who follow him turn around and say, Jesus, if you did not hold anything back in giving yourself for me, how could I hold anything back in giving everything for you? 
when Jesus invites people to follow him, he says, this is what it looks like. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith in World War II Germany, said this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So it's in light of the cost of Christ that we offer ourselves and are willing to pay any cost as we follow him. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is simply this. What will Christ cost you? What will Christ cost you? We turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. We see that the Thessalonians, they received Jesus, they accepted his word, and they accepted it no matter the cost it would entail. Look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of Men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. The simple encouragement I have for us today as we begin this holy week is for us to accept the word of God at any cost. Accept the word of God at any cost. And and I, you, you know, I just like to keep it as real as I possibly can. So let me keep it real. In fact, this may be a little real, real, okay? We love the first part most of the time. God, give me a message. God, share your word with me. Give, give me life, God. Give me direction. But that second part, God, give me, give me, give me. As long as it doesn't cost too much. But what we see here as we learn to follow Jesus is that we will accept the word truly at any cost. I want to give you two truths that are going to help us press into this as we walk through these verses. The first is this. This is, this is, so, this is so amazing. It's so encouraging. God sends his word to work 
in our souls. God sends his word to work in our souls. What Paul has just described in verses 1 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you missed the last couple of weeks, you can catch back up the speed. Uh, he's talking about how they declared the gospel to, of God to them in the much to much conflict with boldness. How they declared the, God, uh, the gospel, how they spoke the word of truth. And, and now he's zeroing in on not how they declared the word, but how the Thessalonians received the word. And Paul is super, super grateful for it. You see, Paul begins and he says that we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. A few things that we see from the outset. Number one, Paul isn't just kind of thankful for what God is doing among the people in Thessalonica who follow Jesus. He's not like, you know, parents get this, and, and sometimes even as adults, we need a little reminder, but, you know, like, like kids who receive something from someone, and they just kind of keep doing their thing and act like they didn't receive, and what a parent's like, say, thank you, right? Like, just a reminder, this isn't like that. Paul says that they were so deeply grateful that they constantly thanked God. The word means without intermission, all right? I know we don't have intermission in movies anymore, but sometimes you'll go to a play or a show, downtown Boston, and what do you see? You see uh, an amazing part of the first part of the the play, and then there's what? Intermission, right? It's like there's a pause. you got to take a breather, go to the restroom, maybe get a snack, buy a drink, whatever. And it's like Paul's like, this isn't like that. There's no stopping our thanks. We're not hitting the pause button on our gratitude to God, but we are so thankful that we just keep pouring out words and prayers of thanksgiving for what God has done in you. And what is he so grateful for? He's grateful for how they received the word of God. Now, Now, when you hear that phrase, word of God, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? The word of God. You think Bible, right? Word of God. This is the word of God. Scripture, 66 books here for us. We call this the word of God, and it is the word of God. But when Paul says the word of God, logon to theu, the word of God, he's saying the message we spoke, the words that we brought to you, the truth of God that we announced, which is, yes, of course, consistent with everything we find here in the Bible, but, but it was the message that they heard that they received from Paul and his friends. And by the way, when we see the word, word of God, it is synonymous with the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. But, but then the Thessalonians' response is captured by two words, received and accepted. Received comes uh, from a word that often refers to receiving a a message passed on from one person to another. And this is what what happened, right? Jesus explained who he was to his apostles. His apostles passed it on to others who passed it on to others. It's very similar to the idea that is captured in Jude chapter 3 that talks about the once 
uh, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is a, a, a body of truth, a message about Jesus that is handed down from one generation to the next. And by the way, Redemption Hill, let's not let it stop with us. Amen? Amen. But then he says that they not only received it, this message passed down, but they also accepted it. And these words are, are nearly synonymous, but the word accepted emphasizes their own initiative in eagerly embracing it. You say, well, well, what was so special about this? What was so special is that ultimately as the Thessalonians heard the voice of Paul and Silas and Timothy and these leaders who were introducing others to Jesus, as they heard their voice, they heard a divine voice behind, in, and through the words of these ordinary people. And Paul emphasizes this in at least three ways, all right? Now, number one, uh, and we have to look into the Greek, and we try not to bring out a lot of Greek in Sunday mornings and whatever, uh, but it's, it's helpful to see how he's emphasizing the divine word working with our human agency and voice, okay? So, so if we look to the Greek, we would find that it would be literally translated out like this. Having received the message, listen, of hearing from us of God. All right, you got that? Let me, let me try that again. Having received the message of, of hearing from us of God. In other words, you heard the message from us, but the message from us was really of God. And Paul is, is helping them, them see that, that, that while we delivered the message, we were just the instruments. The message was really God speaking through us. But then number two, he does it by way of contrast. He says what? You received it not as the word of men... But what it really is, emphasis two, the word of God. Emphasis three, the contrast is, is, is the third emphasis there. And, and, and I want you just to pause and think about this because this is like you can't get more practical than what we see here. And, and to understand this is to say this is exactly what is happening right now. This is exactly what is happening right now. As, as a person communicates God's truth in as much as we are faithful to the message of Scripture and the Holy Spirit is working with our words, in our human voice comes the very voice of God. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 4. I think we mentioned it a couple weeks ago. I can't shake it from my mind where it says Those, there is, there, the time is coming. The hour is coming and is now here. Jesus said this. Where the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. Did Jesus just mean like the next 12 to 18 months that he was going to continue remaining on this earth? No, he, he meant as those who follow him announce the message that the word of God is the message of God is going forth. And those who hear God's voice in the voices of ordinary people are going to receive his 
word and live. And so I want to give you two major implications from this truth that I hope puts a little bit of life into your life this week, all right? Number one, this should give us unbelievable confidence. Let me say that again. This should give us unbelievable confidence. Forget about you have the authority of Christ and he is always with you, okay? Like, don't forget about that, but. But you should have unbelievable confidence when you share God's word. Why? Because he is using ordinary people to convey his extraordinary message. And I'll never get tired of saying this. And, you know, it's like, sorry, Pastor Tanner, you don't have to be so redundant. Maybe I do. You don't need one of these to share God's word. This, this doesn't, what does this do? It just, we need speakers because this is a big room. My voice is not more valuable than your voice. And I, I know that you, well, Pastor Tanner, you're called to this. You're, you might have like the gift of preaching and all this stuff. It's like, Okay. But that doesn't make the message that I share any more valuable than the message you share. And whenever you share that valuable message, it's the same as when I share that valuable message. You don't need a microphone. You do not need a degree. You don't need a certificate of, you know, Bible knowledge to to be able to go out and just tell people the simple story of who God is. What Jesus has done for you, your testimony, your story, and how they can experience the same good news. All you, listen, all you need are two things. I really believe this. You really need one, but two, the second one really helps, okay? So number one, you need the truth. That's really all you need. But, but the second piece really helps out, and that is a heart of love. A heart of love. If you, if you bring God's, the truth of God's message with a sincere heart that cares about the person in front of you. By the way, at Redemption Hill, we don't just like go out wild in Medford and like preach on street corners and don't really care about people. So, so what we want to do is we actually want to like know someone's name befriend them. In fact, most of the, 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 the sharing of the good news is going to happen within relationships, right? Our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers that we're, they're walking alongside. And we share that truth with a heart full of love and compassion. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11, you might want to write these down, say this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, thank God the snow is gone. Amen? Man, I thought you guys were ready for that. Um, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, the snow is gone. Man, you guys are still this one. All right. (laughs) You're like, man, Pastor Tina, that's not in the Bible, so I'm not going to say amen to that. Whatever. All right. I'm going to try again. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. Get the picture of life, what the word does. Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. 
so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. So, so, so do, you see, do you see how there's, there can be unbelievable confidence? Let me, let me say with this, this also takes the pressure off of us. I mean, if you're anything like me, and, and I'm still, I still fight this on the daily, that, that I get into a conversation, and my default temptation is the power rests in my words, not God's word. And anyone ever feel that? It's like, I might not speak up because what if I don't say it right and don't like have all the answers? But the power is, is here. The power is in the truth of God's word. God gives us everything we need in the Kairos moment, the moment of opportunity. And so I hope you'll, you'll hear this today, that God is speaking over your life, over your heart. I will give you the words to say. I will give you the strength to say it. And then when you say it, I will put the power into the words to make it take hold in someone's heart. Even if they don't in that moment say, ah, Jesus, I love you. Maybe it's a simple step of, oh, wait, maybe, maybe God does love me. Which leads to a second and a third and a fourth conversation. So the first implication here is that we should have unbelievable confidence to share God's word. But then number two, and more pertinent to the text, this should call us to humility and expectation as we receive the word of God. So, so when we hear God's message, wherever that message comes on a Sunday morning from a man with a microphone or through a whisper of someone at the bedside of a person who is sick or a water cooler conversation at the office or, or a meal Thursday night with some friends. When we hear God's word, his perfect word comes through imperfect people. And if it's, listen, if it's man's message, just like, Honestly, if it's man's, if this is man's message, you would be better to open all your apps and just do whatever in the world you want to do right now. But if it's God's message, and I love the attentiveness in the room today, then we hang on every word, right? We hang on every word. When we receive it for what it really is and accept it, eagerly embracing it, we do so with a believing Allegiance, And then as we do, what does Paul say at the end in verse 13? Check this out. He says, we receive it for what it really is, the word of God. And what is it? It is at work in you, believers. So, so when you receive the word with humility, when you hang on every word, whether you're waking up in the morning and just getting a chapter of the Bible, which, by the way, will take you all of about three or four minutes, and you receive it and you say, God, would you speak to me today? And would you, would you, would you help me to see what you want me to see uh, in these moments? Even Listen, if you haven't 
opened your Bible in a while and five minutes is what you got, I'm telling you, God's heart lights up with those five minutes. Don't, don't, don't be afraid just to get five. Because as you receive the word anytime, five minutes, five hours, whatever, the word works in us. And it starts doing stuff that we can't even see, but is real. What does the truth of God do? Listen to this. The Bible strengthens us. Matthew 4, 4. What does Jesus say? Man, he told Satan. I love this. Talk back to the devil. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth. There is physical food. We all love food, right? Amen. Amen. No snow and food. Amen. Yes, amen. So, but we need spiritual food. We need to be spiritually strengthened for the race marked out before us. Not only that, the Bible gives us life. Psalm 119, 25. The Bible sets us free. John 8, 32. Have you ever just feel weighed down? Just, you know, not just the chains of addiction and entangling sin, but just held back from all of God's best. In the Bible, when we receive the word and Eagerly embrace what God's truth says. It sets us free. Free to live. Free to run. I'm not done. God's word guides us and lights our way. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It brings a blessing and immense fruitfulness. Just go read Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. It keeps us from sin. How can a young person keep their way pure by living according to your word? I have hidden your hurt word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And God knows we are a bunch of sinners and we still do some jacked up stuff. And we need God's help to keep us from that jacked up stuff that we are so tempted to do even today and tomorrow. God's word counsels us, Psalm 119, 24. God's word makes us wise, Psalm 119, verse 98. God's word revives our souls and rejoices our hearts, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. I could keep going. You can say, oh, Pastor Tanner, I'm not going to take the time to go uh, look at your notes online on our website at the sermons page. Can you just like, give me some cliff notes of what you just said? Go read Psalm 1, 19, and 119, and just keep reading it, and you're going to find all of the benefits of what the Word of God does when you eagerly embrace it and accept it in your life. God's message is transformative. And not just for us as an individual. Because, again, in our Western mindset, in our individualistic culture, most of the time we're hearing sermons and like, thank you, that's for me. I need to get stronger. I need some counsel. I want some life. But that's not what Paul's, Paul's talking about. You feel me? He's talking about the church. He's talking about all of God's people. He's talking about the family, that now there is a new identity where this people have become family and they follow Jesus together. It's at work in you, believers. The word shapes us as a community of Jesus followers. And so this is then where Paul goes in verses 14 through 16. Not only does God send his word to work in our souls, but the evidence of this work now is that we share in Christ's sufferings no matter the cost. We share in Christ's suffering 
no matter the cost. Verses 14 through 16 is actually one long sentence in the Greek language, but the flow is super easy to follow, and the English translations bear this out, okay? So first what we see is that Paul says, hey, this is how I know that the word is working in you. Verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. So, so in other words, he's saying your life is different. You're living differently. There are some clear signs that are coming forth from your life that show you're not just talking about, hey, I love Jesus, but you're actually showing it by how you live your life. And, and how is that? Well, that's what the rest of verses 14 through 16 bear out. And this is what he says. You suffered at the hands of your own people, just like the churches in Judea who suffered from their own people, the Jewish people. In other words, the people who shop at the same market, like stop and shop. The people who walk the same streets like Winthrop Street and High Street and Salem Street. These are the people who are coming against you and persecuting you for your faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw this in Acts chapter 17, if you remember, when we started this book at the beginning of the year, that that Paul goes into Thessalonica and they start telling people about Jesus and and lives are starting to change to the point where the the leaders in the community don't appreciate that. And so what do they do? They They start a riot and they apprehend Jason and some of the other believers and they make them pay a, a fine to get out. They're, they're treating them unjustly, even running Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town. And Paul says, look, take heart. Some of you have even, as we've seen the implications of the, of the book, that some of you have even probably lost your life for the sake of Christ, but take heart because you are not the first to be persecuted. In fact, they treated us in the same ways. And by the way, this is exactly how they treated our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to miss the the fundamental unity that Paul points to of all churches everywhere. Look look again in verse uh, 14. He says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So, so, So you have two churches in two locations, all right? Churches in Judea, Israel, and churches in Thessalonica, modern-day Greece, and, and while you are in two locations, you are both the church of God in Christ Jesus. See that? So, so in other words, what is most important about any group of Jesus followers is not, we love Boston, we all about Boston, in Boston as in heaven, that's our prayer this year, right? But it's not Boston. It's not Beijing. It's not Lagos, it's not all of the the, the different places around the world. No, it is that our ultimate address is now located in Jesus Christ. And that's why if you've ever traveled, and by the way, I would would commend that. Like, let's let's just travel the world to see the awesome sights or whatever. But let's, let's go on mission and connect with other churches and missionaries that are making Jesus known all over the world. And if you've ever done that, what you're going to find is that you move into a a new country 
and you don't understand the language and you don't understand the customs and you don't understand it, but you get in a room with a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And it's like you've been family for years. Have you ever experienced this? It's the beauty of being in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, look, it's, it's how they treated the churches in Judea. You're experiencing the same things. And this is what happened there with the churches in Judea. They, 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 they brought persecution in, in these ways. Look at what it says beginning in verse 15. It says, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. This week I would encourage you to take some time, maybe that, that five to ten minutes every morning, and just read through a portion of the Gospels. Every one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all capture the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And just spend a few moments and consider what it cost Jesus to give himself on your behalf. Just take a moment to reflect not only what it cost Jesus, but the benefits that it delivers to you, to us who believe. And then maybe also, maybe just maybe, you know, take a moment to consider how it calls you to a response as well. Even if that means a costly response. These people killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And the, you go back and read the Old Testament and you see that again and again and again in the lives of Isaiah and, and the Jeremiah's, the persecution they experienced. And then Paul says they drove us out. Go read the book of Acts. There's persecution in one city after another after another. And Paul says what? This displeases God. And not only does it displease God, but it is also standing in opposition to all people everywhere. Why? Because these people are hindering us from speaking to people who have yet to believe and hear, Gentiles who are not ethnic Jews, that they might be saved. And Paul faces this again. And again, and again, and again. Did he find it frustrating? <laughs> yes, absolutely. But did he lose heart? No. Because he understood that, that God is, is calling us to pay the price, to consider the cost and pay that cost no matter what we face. And Paul goes on and he says, look, there are two overarching results of this, and neither of them are good. Number one, this persecution fills up the measure of their sins. In other words, this is the, the cumulative effect of them persecuting and killing and driving out and displeasing God and opposing all mankind. All of this is piling up to fill up the measure, the gravity, the weight of their sinfulness. And if they do not turn back to God and say, God, we were wrong, like the Apostle Paul does in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus meets him on the Damascus road. If they fail to do that, then all they can expect is that what Paul says here at the end of verse 16, wrath has come upon them at last. He's concluding with this announcement of God's wrath or his judgment against them. 
And what is wrath? Wrath is God's just anger and his just judgment against all of our sin, evil, and wickedness. Because God is holy, God must be opposed to that which is unholy, which, oh, by the way, everything that is unholy destroys us. Do you, do you want a God who doesn't care about your destruction? Me either. N.T. Wright says this about God's wrath. God's anger is never reactionary. It's never malevolent. When humans reject him and behave in ways that undermine his wise and generous designs for them and the world, he does not instantly punish them. Thank, thank you, Jesus, for that. But he allows space for repentance for us to turn back to him. And if this does not happen, though wickedness will build up and sin will accumulate until the point where God must say, enough, and bring things to an end. And so why, why is Paul, like, recounting all of this persecution and, 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 and talking about God's judgment here? I think there, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, he wants them to understand when they are persecuted, remember they are in good company. They persecuted us. They persecuted Jesus. But number two, even though they, 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 they're persecuting in all these ways and they seem like they're not, they're not answering for it, that yes, God has the final word. And he will have the final judgment. So why did this, why did this persecution come to the Thessalonians? It came because these people said, Jesus is the crucified king and we must worship him. No more idols, no more ultimate allegiance to Caesar. Can we throw in Biden and Trump as well today? Can we throw it in, fam? Yeah, amen. Amen. We will at Redemption Hill. We will throw it in any and every Sunday because we, we are not ultimately allegiant to any political party. And by the way, in case you haven't heard, neither of those parties get it all right. That's not the Bible. That's my word, but whatever. King Jesus. It's Jesus over everything. Right, Pastor John? Did anyone get a tattoo this week after Pastor John's message? <laughs> Jesus over everything? That would be, if you did, show us after the service. We'll take a picture, put it on Instagram. That would be awesome. So, uh, so, so, so this is happening because of their allegiance to Christ. And you might step back and say, well, okay, we're, we're 2023, Boston, Massachusetts. It's not the easiest being a Christian here, but no one's trying to chop off our head, you know. No one's like throwing us into the, to the, to the pit of lions. What, what does this look like for us in our culture? Well, here are just a few thoughts. Christians in our culture face increasing intolerance, which ironically is in the name of tolerance, right? So, so in other words, like, Tolerance is supposed to mean, the, the, the meaning of the word tolerance is that 
we can have different ideas, different opinions, different even convictions and beliefs, and hold on to those different convictions in a, are you, are you ready for this? Civilized way, in a way that's actually loving toward the other person and, and sees them as someone that's valuable for us, made in the image of God. And we can have an honest dialogue about those differences. And we can seek to understand one another and we don't have to call each other names and in our culture say, oh, Christians are bigots if they believe certain things that line up with what God has clearly said in his word. But not only that, Christians are also being overlooked and insulted and, and, and looked down upon and, 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 and excluded from people's plans and saying we don't, shouldn't have a seat at the table because of our commitment to Christ. And so Jesus said this in John 15, verse 20. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so as, as sure as I'm asking you, what will Christ cost you? And as much as I am pleading with you this week to accept the word of God at any cost, which I'm just going to pause and preach here for a moment, okay? Most Christians live anonymous lives for Jesus. In, in, our, in our culture, not amongst our Christian friends, by the way, you know, like, hey, we're in church, like, holy is our God. Let's sing it again, fam. Sorry, Andy, that wasn't very solid, but. But you put us out in the, like, the real world, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Let's not get to heaven. This is serious. Let's not get to heaven and have Jesus ask us, what was the deal with living so anonymously about me? And I want to say this. Most of the times, this is like, yes, I follow Jesus. We're, we're in a conversation and we're, you know, not only claiming Christ, but encouraging someone else to consider the claims of Christ. And here are two words for you, okay? Two words before I get to the two other words. Number one, you need to hear this. I need to hear this. You have less to fear than you think you do. You, you have less to fear than you think you do. And it goes back to what I said earlier, fam. Listen, 
when people know you love them? Listen, I'm going to keep it 100 right now. I am going to play basketball tomorrow night with a group of dudes that, to my knowledge, most of them probably pray and whatever, but I don't know if any of them, like, follow Jesus. Like, I follow him. My plan is to hoop it up and knock down 10 or 12 threes. Pray for me. It's been a while. We haven't played in about a year. We're getting back together tomorrow night. And then probably at the end of the time, I'm going to say, hey, you guys know I care about you guys. And uh, if you haven't heard, you haven't checked your calendar, Easter is coming up this Sunday. And I don't know what, what your background is or, or what, what plans you have, but listen, Jesus has changed my life. And I would love for you to join me at 10.30 on Sunday morning at Mefford High School and see what all the fuss is about. I probably won't say it that way exactly, but you get the point. And now here's here's the idea. Are those dudes going to like blackball me from the group message? Are they going to say like, yo, Tanner, this dude's a Jesus freak, like, I have less to fear than I think I do. And why is that? Listen, it's because, and this is the beauty of relationship and and not just truth, but truth with a load of love. People like you more than you think they do. They 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 like some of you aren't convinced. Like I'm not getting smiles or nods or like, but like, like you really are like you're awesome people. This is, this is why, like, when you tell someone about Jesus, they're not like, that person is, I'm never talking to them again. But if, if they do, if you get a sideways look, if they talk behind you, behind your back, like, it's still worth it. It's still worth it. Two encouragements to endure suffering and persecution. Number one, when we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Jesus. Amen? That's not, that's what the Bible says. I'm here just to bring you God's truth. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul was rolling on his way to Damascus to persecuted and imprisoned Christians, Jesus meets him on that road in a blinding light. And what does he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not, not, not them, not those people back in Jerusalem, me. When we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Jesus, and Jesus shares in our sufferings. This is what Colossians chapter 1 is is telling us. Listen to to the ESV. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Yo, you want to live dangerously for Jesus? Start counting suffering and persecution as joy, and you might be a little more, God help me to be a little more unstoppable in my attempts to move out with urgent love so that everyone can know who you are. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 
You say, well, Pastor Tanner, I don't get that. And what does it mean that we're filling up Christ's affliction because Jesus died for our sin and there was nothing deficient or insufficient about his sacrifice? That is absolutely true. Jesus paid it all. Nothing but the blood can wash away this man's sin. And he did. And it was good. But again, Paul would say this, the NLT helps. It says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, his church. So when, again, when we suffer, Jesus suffers with us. And anytime his people suffer, Jesus is continuing to suffer alongside and with us. Jesus is with you. He's with you in that conversation, in that choice to follow the ethics of God rather than the ethics of the world in your business. Jesus is with you. And then, and then number two, listen, God never, ever, ever overlooks our suffering. He never overlooks it. So much so that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The, the, the results of living for Jesus, the results of, we, you know, we just did a simple 2-1 challenge. How goofy, right? 2-1 challenge. Anyone think that's goofy? I kind of think it's goofy, and I came up with it. <laughs> but the, the point wasn't marketing. The point was, God, move us. Invite two people, point one person to Jesus in the last two weeks. Time's up, by the way. But time's never up. <laughs> like this week, we can step out. We can invite. We can share. And, 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 one of three things is going to happen. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verses 32 through 34, if you're taking notes, all right? Some mocked them. They persecuted Paul in Athens. Others wanted to hear more, and some believed. Is it a win when someone believes in Jesus? It's not a trick question. Is that, is that a win? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's a win. That's a win. That's what we pray for. But what if? They're just like, hmm, I want to I hear a little more. Is that, that a win? That's a win. That's a win. What if someone mocks you and insults you? That, is that a win? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. There is a cost to this. There is a cost. But there is a greater reward. I want to close by reading Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through the end of chapter 53. And, and as, as I read this, I want you to, I want you to hear this. We don't go looking for suffering. 
Don't go into your workplace, God, I want to suffer today. Jesus suffered Good Friday to end all suffering, Easter Sunday. God is not a big fan of suffering. That's why he died to end it. But though we do not want it, we are willing, willing to suffer if that's what it means to follow Jesus in that moment. And so as I read this, I want to ask a question. Is my avoidance of suffering worth more than what Jesus suffered to secure my salvation? Is my avoidance of suffering more important? Is it worth more than what Jesus suffered to secure my salvation? Look at what, listen to what it says, Isaiah 52. Behold my servant, Jesus Christ, shall act wisely. Jesus shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, Jesus' appearance was so marred. It was beyond human semblance. You couldn't even recognize in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him, God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord God has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't say a word. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he, Jesus, was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people?
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although Jesus had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God, the Lord, to crush him. God has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What will Christ cost you? Will you, Redemption Hill Church, friends of Redemption Hill Church, will you accept God's word at any cost? Jesus paid it all for us. Now we get to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful, Lord, for the, for the price you paid, Jesus. God, we ask that, God, we confess first, God, we confess that we are quick, we are quick to value ourselves in the avoidance of suffering more than we value you and the price you paid to bring us life and set us free. And not just us, Lord, but the hundreds and thousands of people around us. And so, God, it's our simple prayer. As we move out this holy week, as we remember day by day the, the amazing price that you paid on the cross for us, Jesus, that it's in light of your sacrifice, we would say, Jesus, my life is yours, and however you lead me by your spirit, I'll pay any cost because you are the reward and you are worth it.